to the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. I know Happy Monday is always never a, a great way to start a show because no one ever likes being here on a Monday, but we do at least appreciate you starting a week with us right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network, at least for the next two hours as we roll along to 11 a.m. Eastern. We'll try to ease you into your Monday and get you at least in a better mood and hopefully a little bit entertained as we uh, get your week going here. And boy... Hopefully the weekend was good. It was another loaded, absolutely loaded sports weekend. We get the NFL draft coming in a few days. We will do an official Ryan Hickey Show mock draft in 20 minutes from now. So don't go anywhere. I'll tell you who the first quarterback off the board is going to be and where. So you're the first receiver in a very deep wide receiver class uh, where they're going to go. And of course, who is going to be the number and overall pick? Not going to be Aiden Hutchinson. I'll tell you that right now. So we got a lot to get into here between uh, now and 11 a.m. Eastern. As a reminder, we are coming to you live from the Big Italy Pizzeria Studios. With those great pizza, hot heroes, and phenomenal dinners, make sure you check out BigItalyPizza.com to find a location area. Game four of the Nets-Celtics is tonight. Obviously, as we know, Boston's up 3-0. This was supposed to be the return, the much-anticipated return of Ben Simmons, and instead... Had some back issues yesterday. He has been ruled out for game number four today. Here's my reaction to that. There are two ways really to assess performance in sports, right? You could be results-based or process-based. It's not even just a sports thing. It's kind of a, a business thing. You can either judge someone about how the process is going. If you believe they are at least going about things the right way, you will live with the results even if it's not the outcome you want, right? If you're a, a batter in baseball, let's say, and you have your routine every single day, well, if that leads to content success, and even if you have a day that goes 0 for 4, well, you know, okay, my process is correct, so I'm not going to change anything, and you at least will be able to live with the results, even if, like I said, you go 0 for 4, not a great day. The other side, though, is results-based, right? Whether you have teammates, whether you have bosses that don't care how you get there, just as long as the result is what we want, I don't care if you go A to B, if you go A to, to X to Z, to get to be however you can get there as long as the results are uh, are there nothing else matters about how you get to the answer the nets i bring that up because i think the nets and how they got to this ben simmons decision was an awful process the process was terrible but the result is all that matters and the result is a good one the uh, the nets are making the right decision here and not playing ben simmons in game four and we can presume Ben Simmons is not playing at all this postseason, even if the Nets win game four and extend the series later on tonight. But it's the right move. Because what the Nets should have done a long time ago, but didn't, but now they're eventually getting to, is riding the season off for Ben Simmons. Look, the guy's under contract for three more seasons. So this is not exactly a championship or bust year for the Nets in terms of, you know, this core is going to break up after this season. KD is under contract, and more importantly, at least for this scenario, Ben Simmons is under contract for three more years. So get him healthy in the offseason, have him actually practice with the team, 
and then ease him on back into playing some regular season games next year once he's comfortable, once he's healthy. I never bought, I never thought it was a good idea for the Nets to try to rush him back and bring him back in this postseason. But like we mentioned, the result was the right move, was the right one, and not playing Ben Simmons. The process, though, was completely flawed. Because we, as sports fans, especially Nets fans, were strung along that the possibility of Ben Simmons returning was, we were strung along for weeks, right? We kept hearing, oh, Ben Simmons is practicing. He's going to get there. He's going to play, especially when the postseason started. It was what? He's not going to play in the plane, but the goal is midway through the first round of the playoffs, he's going to make his return. For basically about a month, we were under the belief, we were told by reports um, throughout different, you know, by very well-respected ESPN or NBA reporters, whether it's Woj, whether it's Shams at The Athletic, right? There was multiple people we trust that were saying, midway through the first round, Ben Simmons is going to make his return. Then we got the word, as long as he's feeling okay, game four is the game Ben Simmons is going to make his return. We were strung along and led to believe he is going to play. When in reality, it never should have been an option. I don't know if it was the Nets leaking this out to, let's say, Woj or Shams. I don't know if it's the Ben Simmons camp and trying to save face and trying to show that the competitor he is or whatever. If they were the ones leaking out that, hey, game four is going to be a game where Ben Simmons is going to return. Whoever was the one behind the leaks absolutely had the wrong mindset and absolutely had the wrong process in trying to have people believe that Ben Simmons was going to return this postseason because it was it should have never been an option. And all they did was set themselves up for criticism that they received over the weekend when the news came out and then today now as we kind of settle back in to the normal schedule and talk about game four tonight. But I will say, even though the process was flawed, I thought it, again, led to more criticism than, than warranted and was the wrong way of going about it. The most important thing is the result. And the result is that Ben Simmons is not playing game four and we can presume is done for the postseason. Because let me ask you this question. How does his return truly help Brooklyn? How does Ben Simmons and not playing for a year help the Nets win basketball games? I know what you're going to say, Ryan. Look at the series. They're down 0-3. It can't get any worse. You're right. It can't get any worse. But the reality is, if you expect anything positive out of Ben Simmons' postseason, it's realistic. You're only bringing him back because you believe you can get some sort of positive contribution, right? The, the Nets, whether it's Joe Side, the owner, whether it's Sean Marks, the GM, whether it's Steve Nash, uh, the head coach, or even if you look at Ben Simmons himself, they are not bringing Ben Simmons back to play if they thought he can't contribute to anything positive. Right, if they knew this guy's going to be a liability, he's going to stink on the court, they're not going to bring him back. So they were at least ramping up and getting him ready to play because they believed he can contribute in a positive way this postseason. And I think that's totally unrealistic. Not going to happen. Because the reality is he hasn't played basketball in essentially a year. The last game he played, it was a very well-known game. Game 7. Eastern Conference semifinals against the Hawks. That date he last played a basketball game, a competitive basketball game, was June 20th. It is now April 25th. So sure, just about, just over 10 months, but let's just round up to a year because that's basically what it is. So he has not played a basketball game in a calendar year. And now you think, if you're the Nets or even if you're Ben Simmons, after not playing for that long, you can come into a postseason game even when you're down 0-3. 
you could still come in the postseason and think you're going to have success? No, that makes no sense. And forget about even just playing in a competitive game. Put that off to the side for a second. Forget the fact he hasn't worn, you know, a, a real team uniform in over in just about a year. Let's talk about practice. Yes, that's right, Allen Iverson. Hope you're listening because we are talking about practice. For players like AI, they don't think practice is important. But for players like Ben Simmons, who hasn't played in a year, practice is very important. And for him, he hasn't, forget about playing, he hasn't even practiced with the Nets. When you go this long without playing, and as we know, right, when he basically quit on the Sixers, which is what he did, he showed up for that one practice he was there where he had the phone in his pocket, he half-assed it, we saw the videos that came out, he was barely even moving. So that was the only time he practiced with the Sixers this year. It was a half-assed practice at best. The guy didn't even break a sweat. He, bro- he did more of a workout walking into the facility, just walking in the facility, than he did actually on the court when he was there trying to, or supposedly, supposed to be practicing. So he hasn't practiced with the Sixers. He sat out that he, you know, for half of the year, three quarters of the year. Then he's straight to the Nets. He has that herniated disc issue. And every video you see of Ben Simmons at a Brooklyn Nets practice is what? Him dribbling the ball, taking one step, and kind of like, eh, kind of doing a little lift, one arm shot from like uh, three feet away from the basket. Almost kind of like a hook shot. That's it. There's no explosive running. There's no one-on-one. There's no three-on-three. There's no five-on-five work. You don't see him sprinting or cutting or jumping. The guy has been unable to practice because of a herniated disc. And he hasn't been even breaking a sweat in practice for a year. So you really think for someone who hasn't played in a year, who hasn't even really practiced at all with his new teammates, that he was going to show up in game four, whether you're down uh, 0-3, whether you're up 2-1, whether you're down 2-1, doesn't matter what the series is. You really thought game four, Ben Simmons is going to show up and what, put the clamps on Jason Tatum? Shut down Jalen Brown? Like, I, I get Ben Simmons is an all-NBA defender, but when the guy has not played in the year, and now you're going to just, just basically drop him in the deep end on the postseason, where Jason Tatum has been tremendous, Jalen Brown is getting really hot, you think he's really going to play well? The answer is no. The answer is absolutely not. So that's where it goes back to expectations and realistic um, thinking that he was going to come in and play well. It was not happening. I'm not even trying to defend Ben Simmons here, but it's almost a little unfair to expect Ben Simmons to come in in game four without practicing or playing for basically a year and have him play well. I get what you're asking him to do, right? You're not asking him to shoot. You're not asking him to be a primary offensive uh, scorer. You basically need him to defend, to rebound, and to get the transition offense going. That's sort of a point guard. They really do need a point guard, right? They need someone that can get the offense going. So I get what the Nets are asking, in theory, Ben Simmons to do in this postseason are just his strengths. You're not asking him to shoot. You're not telling him, hey, we need you to step up here and score 30 points to save us. You're asking him to do things he has done well in the past. But the issue is, you're asking him to play his best basketball in a massive game when he hasn't even played. I don't think he's even run up and down the court one time. And now you're going to thrust him on in there and say, all right, Ben, go, go, go lock down Jason Tatum and get our offense going. It's not realistic. Which is why I never thought from the beginning Ben Simmons' return this postseason was a good idea. Not to mention, trying to thrust him back into the same exact spotlight and situation where he shrunk last year 
I don't think it's a recipe for success. Like, if you think about it, right, there, there's a difference, I get it, between coddling a, a player of Ben Simmons' type and then just trying to, you know, force him to play well. I, I understand that my maybe philosophy here is a little bit on the coddling side than not. But if you're the Nets, your goal is to put, uh, to put the player in the best position to succeed, right? That is part of your goal, and that is part of Steve Nash's job and even Kevin Durant's job, is to give the player you acquired the best chance for them to have success. I don't think that is dropping Ben Simmons in the deep end in game four of the postseason saying, sink or swim. And we know the last time he was there, he sunk. Right? If you're teaching someone to swim, you wouldn't drop in the deep end, have them you know, uh, struggle, take him out, not really teach him anything, and then do it again. Drop him in there again. You got to ease their way into it. So maybe, sure, I'm being overly cautious, but part of the Nets' responsibility is to try to give the players around them the best chance to succeed. And for Ben Simmons, I think the best chance for him succeeding next year, getting his confidence back up and playing and getting back to that all-NBA defensive level is by easing him in, taking him into the shallow end, which is having him not play this postseason, have him you know, get healthier and work in the offseason, and have him play in the regular season next year ease him on in get him back to some regular season action get him comfortable with actually playing with Kevin Durant and whoever else is going to be on the team next year instead of just saying all right we need a life preserver go drop Ben Simmons in there and see what happens the the spotlight even though you're down 0-3 is still going to be massive on Ben Simmons since he is really the only storyline worth focusing on so the the stakes are still high even though you're down 0-3 and the season's over I just don't think that's a recipe for success for Ben Simmons with the Nets. And even too, the final thing I'll say here is, let's just say he did play, and let's say he played well. Let's just say the impossible happened where he came in and played great defense on Jason Tatum. He played lights-out defense on Jalen Brown. How does that even really impact the Nets because he's not going to be playing a ton of minutes? Like the goal was, and the plan was reportedly, to play 10 to 15 minutes. If he even does play 10 to 15 minutes of lockdown, shutdown defense, gets a ton of rebounds, and you know has the Nets uh, offense running out and breaking out, when it's such a short and small sample size, how is that truly going to help the Nets win? Where if he's only playing 10 or 15 minutes, that's like you know five to seven minutes a half. How are you going to think that that's truly going to really give the Nets this big shot in the arm or or have them uh, win this game? It's not. It's not enough time to impact the game in a positive way. So I think for me, end of the day, the Nets um, did the right thing here. The process to how we got to this decision could have been more flawed, couldn't have been more backwards. But at the end of the day, it is sports are a result-oriented business. And the result is Ben Simmons is not playing in game four. We can presume he's not going to play this postseason. And that to me is the absolute right move. Have him play and practice this offseason, work him back into the lineup next year in the regular season, and forget about this year for Ben Simmons and his return. So I'm curious your thoughts here. Are you disappointed Ben Simmons is not playing this postseason? Is it a mistake that he is now playing in this postseason? Or should the Nets have tried to really try to get him into the lineup? Love to hear your thoughts. Facebook, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Twitter, WWSRN underscore radio. Or you could tweet us at Ryan Hickey Show. Ryan Hickey Show. Make sure you check us out on YouTube as well, where we are live Worldwide Sports Radio Network. What are your thoughts on Ben Simmons sitting out game number four tonight? Is this the smart move? Is it the right move? Or is it a mistake? Should he be playing? We'll get your thoughts. And when we return, 
I am not doing Thursday's show because I will actually be in Vegas working on CBS Sports Radio for the NFL Draft. So we're going to do a, a draft preview show next segment. My f- one and only official, if you will, mock draft. Who's going number one? First quarterback off the board. Big trade in the, in the top ten. We'll tell you all about it when the Ryan Show returns right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It's the Worldwide Sports Radio Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Oh yeah, welcome on back. It is the Ryan Hickey Show with you right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Mock draft time. The NFL draft is three days away. Thursday afternoon, at least local time in Las Vegas. Thursday night for most of us here on the Easter on the East Coast. And it is a very interesting draft because for the most part, it's not a very quarterback rich draft, but also at the same time, there's even not a consensus number one overall pick. There are a lot of question marks, which I don't know about you, I love. Last year's draft was a lot of fun because there's a big discussion about number three, who the 49ers are going to take. But we know Trevor Lawrence is going number one to the Jaguars. We knew uh, Zach Wilson is going to go to the Jets at number two. Now, there's even not a consensus or an overall favorite who's going to go number one to the Jaguars this year. So, so many questions. I love it because that means just so many surprises and, and different reactions to the draft. So, I am fired up for this draft. So, let's try to answer some of those questions that are out there in round number one. Starting with the first overall pick. Who is going to go? Here's my answer. If I was at Jaguars, I would take Evan Neal out of Alabama. Now, Peter King this morning in his uh, weekly NFL com did his own little mock draft, and he said, according to his sources, expect a surprise from the Jaguars at number one. For the most part, the one consensus uh, thought at number one was Aiden Hutchinson to the Jaguars. But again, as you get closer, you're starting to hear more and more rumbles of Trayvon Walker, or uh, Trayvon Walker. Maybe it is uh, Iki Aquanu out of NC State. I'm going to go with Evan Neal here if I was the Jaguars, if I was Chad Balky at number one. Because your first and major priority for this team is keeping Trevor Lawrence upright. Now, I understand he wasn't sacked anywhere near, you know, Joe Burrow levels, I'd say. He was only sacked, we say only, 32 times last year. That was 14th most in the NFL. So the Jaguars did a decent job at protecting Trevor Lawrence. But this is my thought here. You can never have enough protection in front of him. You can't. You can never have too many good offensive linemen on your roster. And even though you have Cam Robinson and Juwan Taylor as your two tackles on the outside, let me ask you this question. Do you really feel great about those two protecting Trevor Lawrence? I don't. So you can only use more help, not to mention if they do, let's say, in camp continue to play well and they do show you, hey, you know what? You do feel good about your left and your right tackle. Well, the good news is Evan Neal has played multiple positions. He's played left tackle. He's played right tackle. He's played guard. So guess what? He is versatile. He can basically plug and play wherever you need him. So if you're the Jaguars, really the best case scenario is that Cam Robinson continues to develop. Jawan Taylor continues to develop. And you can plug Evan Neal in at left or right guard and have your offensive line for three to the five positions be really solid. Take Evan Neal. Help give Trevor Lawrence even more time because the more time he has to throw, the more he'll be able to find his receivers and the better he'll develop because he won't be fearing the rush like so many young quarterbacks do when they're on bad teams and just getting the pulp beat out of them. Evan Neal, number one overall pick for the Jacksonville Jaguars. I want to do quickly the top four because I do think the top four picks in the draft 
are a very much a toss-up. And it starts with the Jaguars, who they go, and it's a chain reaction from there. So I think the Jaguars should and will take Evan Neal number one. I will go with an Aiden Hutchinson number two. Lions, it's a win-win here. You get a pass rusher, which they have not had in a while, and you also get a local kid. Playing at the University of Michigan, every fan base always loves when you take the local kid here. It's a win-win for Detroit. You have some good vibes coming for the Lions fans. And not to mention, you get some much-needed help in a, in a spot on your roster that is severely lacking. The Lions as a team last year had 30 sacks on the season, third fewest in the NFL. They struggle getting after the quarterback. They struggle, you know, getting consistent pressure at all. Get Aiden Hutchinson. Get yourself a defensive end who can get constant pressure, who can tackle the quarterback, who can, again, when you're in a division with Aaron Rodgers and Kirk Cousins, give your defense a chance. Give your defense a chance. You, you know, you took... Um, or you, you at least have gone defense in the past few years Detroit has. Now give yourself a chance to give some of those uh, defensive backs a chance here by getting and speeding up the quarterback process. You do that by getting Aiden Hutchinson, number two overall. And the Texans at three should take Icky Aquanim, tackle out of NC State. Houston, look, they need help everywhere, right? They are just like the Lions and just like the... Um, the Jaguars, they need help at a lot of different positions. But they especially need help at offensive line. Right, if they want to give um, Mills a chance here to actually have success, they're going to give him the job. They're going to say, Davis Mills, at least for 2022, show us what you got. So if you actually want to give Davis Mills a legit shot here to win the starting job and maybe, maybe be your starter going forward past just 2022, well, one of the ways you got to give him a chance here is by giving him time to throw the ball. The Texans do not have a very good offensive line. Get Ike Kwanu at a very important position. Um, we know Laramie Tunsil is older. So again, how were the Texans in a rebuild? If you look at a two to three year window for them to try to get young players and try to turn the team around where you're going from rebuild mode to compete mode. Well, in that two to three year stretch here, you're going to have Laramie Tunsil who's older and going to be still very highly paid. So he could be a good trade piece you use either this year or next year to move off, get Ike Kwanu in there. He'll be there through the end of the rebuild, and he should be your bookend left tackle for a decade. So if you want to give Davis Mills a chance, the only way to do so is like giving him more time to throw. Get Ike Kwanu to be your, even if he doesn't play left tackle this year, you slide him over to the right side, you eventually can feel good that once you trade Larry Tunsil, um, that you will have a real you know left tackle there for a decade, a cornerstone player that you could build around and you didn't overpay for like the Texans did when they traded two first-round picks from Larry Tunsil and then also overpaid him and gave him a way higher salary than his production called for. This is a good pick, I think, for the Texans to start building off offensive line and give Davis Mills a shot here. And the Jets at four. I think they should go uh, Kayvon Thibodeau. Take the talent at the end. The talent in the NFL always wins out. There's been a lot of discussion surrounding Kayvon Thibodeau about his love for football, that he loves being a football player more than actually playing football. He loves the brand and, and everything comes around, uh, comes about with being a, a professional player, but that, you know, maybe he doesn't put the work in. I think that is a, a lot of just pre-draft smoke. I think it's a lot of BS to be honest with you here. He's a very talented pass rusher. For a while, he was considered the best prospect in this draft and number one overall. The Jets haven't had a very talented pass rusher in a long time. So forget about all of the concerns about, I don't even say his character, because he's, by everyone you talk to, every stretch of imagination, a great guy. 
very smart, caring. Like he's not like um, something you have to worry about off the field in terms of getting in trouble. He's a high character guy, but in terms of his love or dedication for football, I think it's BS. Throw that all to the side and get talented players. Talent in the end wins out. And again, right now, one of the big positions of need for the Jets, well, is everywhere, frankly, on defense. But one of the ways at least you help by your defense is by making the quarterback make quicker decisions. Don't get him comfortable in the pocket. Don't allow him to sit back there and pick apart that awful Jets secondary. One of the ways you improve it is by getting a pass rusher that can disrupt the offense and get after the quarterback. Kayvon Thibodeau is that guy. So forget about the draft, you know, the pre-draft smoke. Forget about all the questions about his love for football. It's nonsense. The talent in the end wins out in the NFL and take one of the most talented guys on the board at that time. The Jets desperately need talent. Thibodeau has a lot of talent. Don't overthink it. Joe Douglas, simple, boom, Kayvon Thibodeau, number four, and move on. So the first four, I think, should go Evan Neal, one to the Jaguars, um, two, Aiden Hutchinson to the Lions, three, Icky Aquano to the Texans, four, Kayvon Thibodeau to the Jets. I think all four teams would be thrilled if that's how the first four picks shake out. Notice, in those first four picks, not a quarterback in the draft, right? Not a quarterback drafted, which would... Just be the second time since 2001 where a quarterback has not gone in the top three picks. So it's going to be an already weak draft class for quarterbacks as we know. But where will the first quarterback go? I think the first quarterback off the board is going to be Malik Willis. And I think he's going to go to the Saints. I don't think the Panthers take a quarterback at six. I think the Seahawks are sticking with, with Drew Locke. New Orleans now having two first round picks gives them a chance to not only grab the quarterback of the future, but also draft a starter for right now. When, excuse me, when the Saints made that trade with the Eagles, where the Eagles gave them an extra first round pick, the belief was the Saints now have two first round picks in the late teens in order to get two playmakers to make a playoff push. They like the defense. They like, you know, the fact of Alvin Kamara and Michael Thomas now returning an offense. They re-signed Jameis Winston, as we know. The offense line is pretty solid, even though you lost Troy Armstead this offseason to the Dolphins. These Saints uh, have a very, you know, balanced and solid roster. And especially in a weak NFC, should be a playoff team this year. So when you have two first-round picks, I think the Saints get both, uh, the best of both worlds. They can be able to, with their first first-round pick, draft an impact player. Whether that's defense, whether that's offensive line, whether it's even a receiver to pair with Michael Thomas, while also then getting their quarterback of the future and develop him, Malik Willis, you hope, again, to be that guy to take over the NFC. Because when you look at the NFC right now, the two best quarterbacks, Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers. Tom Brady is 45, Aaron Rodgers is 38 years old. They're going to be aging out of the NFL soon. And Matthew Stafford is, you know, in his mid-30s and he's still there, but you know, does have an injury history and the Rams are, you know, built at least for the short term, the three or four year window right now to win as many Super Bowls as they can in the short time period. So you look at the long, you know, the long term uh, outlook here in the NFC, there's not many teams positioned to be consistent contenders in the NFC for a while. The Cowboys and Dak Prescott have their issues. Kyler Murray and the Cardinals right now have some acrimony. We'll see if they can, you know, be able to figure that out and get a contract extension done with Kyler. But right now, the future outlook of the NFC, three, four, five years from now, is wide, wide, wide open. So if you're the Saints, you can compete right now with your first first round pick and get someone who can impact the team right away. Whether it's another weapon for Jameis Winston, whether it's a defensive player to, to make the defense, which is already a very good unit, even stronger. 
And then you can also draft your quarterback of the future, Malik Willis. He's not gonna. He shouldn't play, nor will he play this year in the first uh, in his first season. He is someone who's been deemed a project. So let him sit behind Jameis Winston. Let him learn this Saints offense. Have him practice, kind of similar what the 49ers did with Trey Lance. Compete this year for a playoff spot with Jameis Winston, and then next year, give Malik Willis a real shot here to lead your offense and lead your team. Um, Going for the future. He has a lot of talent, Malik Willis does. He's, in terms of ceiling, has the highest ceiling. So if you're the Saints here, you can, I think, double dip with two of your first-round picks and getting a need for the now to compete in 2022 and also getting a need for the future that can help you compete for the next decade. The key of Malik Willis is development and time. The Saints can absolutely afford to do both by drafting him this year. Not to, I think, Malik Willis will go to the Saints. Malik Willis' first team, uh, first QB off the board, it will be to New Orleans. The first receiver off the board in a very loaded wide receiver draft, I think it's going to be Garrett Wilson. I think he's going to go to the Falcons at number eight. Garrett Wilson is a great combination of speed and route running. He is very good after the catch. He can make plays happen. He's a home run threat. I think he kind of gives you as close to a full package as you can ask for for wide receiver. And now, as we know, at the Falcons... Uh, having Calvin Ridley out for the year for that gambling suspension. They need help on the outside. You have Marcus Mariota, who's going to be the quarterback this year. Look, the Falcons are going to be the worst team in the NFL. They are. But they are slowly now starting to at least try to build a young nucleus of players that they can develop and build around. Um, you got to presume, and I would, that the Falcons will take a quarterback next year, whether it's Bryce Young, CJ Stroud. We'll see. They're going to be the worst team or right there. So they'll guaranteed, I think, a top three pick in the draft next year. So you want that young quarterback at least to have some sort of weapon to throw the ball to. And Garrett Wilson now having him, you know, drafting him now, giving that quarterback next year a real legit weapon to throw to will be a win. I think he's the first quarterback off the board. Teams love speed, as we know, love that home run threat. Garrett Wilson brings that. I think that's why he's the first uh, wide receiver off the board going to the Falcons at eight. And I think we will have one big trade. A lot of teams want to trade down in this draft. And I think the one team that will actually do so successfully will be the Seahawks. The Seahawks have traded down in 10 out of their last 11 first-round picks they have had. So they absolutely love having those first-round picks and moving them. Getting more assets, getting more uh, getting more flexibility in terms of whether it's extra players or whether it's actual actual uh, draft assets, John Schneider loves doing it. He hates, hates making his first-round pick wherever the Seahawks end up, and I think that won't change this year. Even though this is the highest they've been in a very long time sitting there at number nine, I do think they will trade down, and they will trade down to a very uh, needy team who needs a receiver. Teams like the Packers, teams like the Chiefs, maybe even the Saints. I know I just had them going Malik Willis there uh, with their one of their first-round picks, but I could easily see the Saints as well trading up to try to get a receiver as well. Teams are going to, you know, at least contending teams need help at wide receiver. And the run at receiver is going to start early. I think it starts at number eight with Garrett Wilson. I think we'll see a lot of quarter uh, receivers, I should say, then go quickly after that. Chris Olave, Drake London, Jamison Williams. I think we'll see a, a heavy run of receivers go into the in the middle of the draft. And one of those teams I think that will take advantage of that and trade down are the Seahawks um, at number nine. Look, it makes sense for Seattle to trade down too. Look, they're in a rebuild. I don't care what John Schneider and Pete Carroll say about competing this year. They are nowhere close to competing this year. So they need help basically everywhere but wide receiver. 
So if you're going to have a ton of wide receivers go kind of right where Seattle is, it makes sense you trade down to a team that is desperate to get a receiver, get extra draft assets, and whether it's draft assets for next year's draft or whether it's this year's draft, use those multiple picks in order to shore up as many positions as possible. Because again, outside of receiver, this Seahawks team needs help everywhere. They need help, they need help on the offensive line. They need help uh, at all three levels on the defense. They need a running back of health. They, they need a lot of work here. They need a they need a quarterback. They're not going to dress at this draft. They need a quarterback. So again, outside of receiver, the Seahawks need help everywhere. So one of the ways you do that is by getting multiple picks. I think that's why the Seahawks will trade down from number nine. Uh, a quarter or a receiver need team going to move up. Get a uh, receiver that they love, whether it's Jamison Williams, again, Chris Olaving, Drake London. And then we'll see... Um, Seattle do what they do best, trade down for the 11th time in 12 first round picks. So I'm curious your thoughts here as you hear the official Ryan Hickey show mock drafter. The first four picks I think are going to go off the board. Evan Neal to the Jaguars and number one, the tackle from Alabama. Aiden Hutchinson, defensive end from Michigan, going number two, staying in the state of Michigan, going to Detroit, uh, play for the Lions. Aki Aquanu, the tackle out of NC State, going third to the Texans. And Kayvon Thibodeau, the very talented, very talented Oregon defensive end, going to the Jets at number four. First quarterback off the board, I think it's going to be Malik Willis to the Saints. And the first receiver off the board, I think it's going to be Garrett Wilson to the Falcons at number eight. And the one team in the top ten trading down, the big trade I think we're going to get, is going to be Seattle at number nine, moving on down. So I'm curious your thoughts here. As you get set for the NFL Draft, where is the first quarterback going to be drafted at? Will it be outside the top 10? Who will draft the first quarterback and who, which quarterback will be the first one off the board? Love to hear your thoughts here at Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter. You can go to me right there or right in the live stream of uh, on Twitter, which is streaming live on our Ryan Hickey Show Twitter page. You can write on Facebook, Worldwide Sports Run Eric. Make sure to check us out there and throw us a like at the Ryan Hickey Show page. And on YouTube, you can comment on the live stream. We are uh, streaming live on YouTube at Worldwide Sports Radio Network. When we return, we'll go back to the NBA for a little bit here because the Sixers are now dealing with another injury to Joel Embiid. The fear is he has a torn ligament in his right thumb, but he's going to continue to play. Here's the thing, though. The injury to Embiid, I think, only increases the pressure on one player on the Sixers. I'll tell you who that player is and why when we return. Listen to the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And welcome back into the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. 15 minutes from now, how many quarterbacks will uh, should go in the first round? Should any quarterback be drafted in the first round? I'll give you my thoughts on why that answer is no. 15 minutes, though, from now. But before that, I want to get into Joel Embiid and his thumb injury. Over Or Friday afternoon, we found out Joel Embiid is dealing with a torn ligament or fearing a torn ligament in his right thumb, but Embiid is going to push through. He's going to play the rest of the postseason. But that injury, I think, is significant because it adds extra pressure to one specific player on the Sixers, and that's James Harden. 
James Harden is the most impacted player by Joel Embiid's thumb injury, and here's why. We now know and we now see the injury history of Joel Embiid come postseason time. It's long enough, it's expansive enough that you have to change how you view this team come postseason time every year forward. And why that view and why that calculus now changes it or how it changes and how it impacts James Harden, I should say, is because now it forces James Harden to go back to being the scorer that we saw for so long. He can no longer just be the facilitator that he's really been so far in Philly the last few months and that he's been in Brooklyn for, for the year that he was there at the Nets as well. Uh, Harden needs to go back to being one of the most dynamic scorers in the NBA you know, through his heyday when he was on the Rockets. Uh, for the most of his career. And if he's unwilling to go back to that aggressive scoring um, uh, type of player that he was, if he's unable to do that, if he tries and fails, the Sixers have to move on and get someone else next to Embiid that can step up when needed. Because the, the Sixers now, when you hear about Joel Embiid's thumb injury, you now going forward this year and how you construct your team moving forward, you have to basically... Always in the back of your head, think Joel Embiid's going to have some sort of injury he's dealing with. You cannot rely on Joel Embiid to ever be healthy again in the postseason. If he is, tremendous. It's a win-win that's obviously you know going to help boost your title odds immensely. But for Daryl Morey, you can never assume your best player in Embiid is going to be healthy in the postseason ever again. So you have to game plan now when you build your roster. When you construct your team and try to find the players that can play alongside Joel Embiid, you have to basically game plan now in the offseason to find players that fit with Embiid and can 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 even elevate their game higher because you have to game plan that Embiid will be dealing with some sort of injury. Because the last few postseasons, we have seen Embiid, to his credit, while well, he's played, deal with some sort of nagging injury that's impacted his ability on the court. 2018, first postseason he ever played in. He was dealing with an orbital fracture, missed two games, um, in that postseason. Last year, suffered a torn meniscus uh, in the playoffs, missed one game, and as we know, it did impact him at times during the Hawks series. And this year now, he's dealing with a, a possible, possible, we don't know because there's no official MRI, but a possible and a fear of a torn ligament in his right thumb. So we have seen Embiid deal with a lot of different injuries throughout the last few postseasons. Again, to his credit, he is still on the court. Like, despite those serious injuries, a thumb, you know, ligament injury that we believe to be true, a torn meniscus, and an orbital fracture, to his credit, he's only missed four playoff games. So he even, even though he's dealing with injuries, he's been on the court. But the reality, though, is that those injuries, even though he's out there, have slowed down his production, have impacted him on the court, and have taken away uh, some of the great play that we have seen from Joel Embiid. So if you are now Daryl Morey, you have to game plan for the fact that every single postseason, Embiid is going to have some sort of nagging injury. It's most likely not going to keep him out of the lineup, but it's also most likely not going to have him playing his best basketball this season. So now, your offseason, this offseason specifically, is not just finding a player that can play well alongside Joel Embiid. It is finding a player that can carry Embiid and the Sixers in the postseason. Because again... The injuries, while he has been playing, does limit his effectiveness. 
And you need, while it's not every game, because we have seen flashes even last year when he had the torn meniscus, especially where there are some games where you forget Joel Embiid is even hurt. He's flying up and down the court. He's blocking. He's dunking. He, he's, he's sprinting. He's diving. There were times last year where I'm like, this guy's hurt? There's no way he has a torn meniscus in his knee. And there's other games where you see that lift really be limited, where his drive and ex- his explosiveness is hampered. And even with a thumb injury, despite the fact he hurt it in game three, at some point, we believe in the first half, he still had 33 points and hit the game-winning turnaround three. So he has played well, and even we saw in game four, him come back to earth and struggle a little bit with his, with his efficiency and have him still bang that thumb around and have him be in severe pain. So you need to now find a player, if you're Darren Moore this offseason, that at times can carry and beat when he's hurting or struggling and can carry the Sixers team in the playoffs because you have to now... Game plan for the fact that Embiid will never be healthy in the postseason again. And I'll be honest, I don't think James Harden is the guy you can feel comfortable with putting alongside Joel Embiid and believing and expecting him to carry the Sixers team when Joel Embiid is struggling. Like, we know. I'm not even going to get into the postseason struggles uh, of James Harden's career. They are well documented. We all know that. But the reality is the last few years, what we have seen is James Harden become extremely passive. These last few playoff games, these last few postseasons, whether he's with the Nets last year or this year so far in the four games he's played with the Sixers, he has become a pass-first player. His assists per game average, the two highest assists per game average in the playoffs uh, James Harden's had have been this year and last year. When you look at his field goal attempts, right, as we know he's the dominant scorer for, um, for the Rockets for most of his career, the two lowest Field goal attempts average in James Harden's career have come the last two postseasons. So whether it's with the Nets this year or the Sixers this year, he has shot less, passed more. That has now been James Harden's MO. He has now become a pass-first point guard. He has been a facilitator more than a scorer. And guess what? Being a facilitator when your star player, your MVP in Joel Embiid is hurting, and some games need someone else to take the torch. That is where you need James Harden to step up big time and carry this team. Not only do I don't think he can do it, I don't think he wants to do it. Now you need James Harden in these games to be the aggressor. You need him to get to the rim, draw fouls, take threes, make threes, take over a game. We've seen him do it in so many regular season games. We have yet to see him really do it in the postseason at all. And now, especially when Embiid is hurt and deal with a serious injury, like a, a ligament injury in his right thumb, his shooting thumb, you need someone else to step up and take the pressure off of Embiid when he's hurt. Tyrus Maxey so far has had a great postseason, but he's still a very young player, still developing, hasn't been able to consistently be that guy. You need James Harden. You are paying James Harden to be that guy. And guess what? He hasn't shown that he can either be the guy or that he wants to be that guy. But like James Harden, again, being now the the, the passive uh, player, the pass-first point guard, when he's, when he's surrounded by Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, that works. And we saw that Nets offense last year when those three on the court run at historic efficiency levels. Because Harden knew his role and he would get KD great looks, he would get Kyrie great looks. And when the defense is focused on them, he would get his as well. Embiid, when Embiid's the MVP of the league and tearing up every single team he plays, yeah, being that pass-first guy and getting Embiid some good looks works out. But when you have another injury to your star player like Embiid is suffering from now, you don't need James Harden. You can't afford 
James Harden to be that pass-first guy. You need him to take over a game, especially when Embiid is struggling. He had a chance to do so in Toronto, didn't do so in Game 4. And we are going to see now the rest of this postseason if Harden can be that guy, if he can flip the narrative. I don't think he, he can do it. Which is why if I'm Darren Morey, I don't care that you're friends with James Harden. I don't care what you gave up in order to get for uh, to trade from the deadline. You owe it to Embiid. You owe it to the rest of the Sixers organization. You owe it to the Sixers fans to get the best possible player that can not only play well alongside Embiid, but can step up when needed in the postseason and take over a game. That is the only person slash player you should be looking for to acquire this offseason. So I don't, with me not thinking Harden can do it, I don't think you can resign him. Whether you sign and trade, whether you just let him go in free agency and get nothing back. It's a difficult decision, I get it. But you now have to find someone that can step up big time and play well when your star player like Embiid, who has been hurt in postseasons past, gets hurt again like he did this year with a thumb injury. You can never now assume again that Embiid will be healthy come postseason time. So now it is all about finding basically a second star, a 1A, that can take over games when your star player in Embiid is hurt and struggling or hurt and not as effective as we've seen him this year in an MVP caliber season. I don't think James Harden is a guy capable of stepping up or even wants to step up. You now, if you're a Darren Morey, have to find that guy who can and will step up when your star player is hurt and struggling. You owe it to Embiid. You owe it to everyone in the organization to find that guy. Harden will get his chances posted. He'll get a chance to audition to be that guy. I don't think he can because we've seen now James Harden posts in too many times, too often, and we've seen him fail too often with chances to take over the game and be the guy he doesn't want to or he can't do it. He struggles. I think that struggle is not going to be good enough for Daryl Morey this season to justify re-signing it. So that's why for me, this injury to Embiid doesn't impact him the most, even though he's the one playing with a thumb injury, even though he is the possible MVP of the league. To me, it impacts now James Harden because it only adds more pressure on Harden to step up and be the guy to lead this offense and be the guy to carry this Sixers team when their star player in Embiid is hurt and ineffective. Having an eh kind of game four like Embiid did, going just 6-17, scoring 21 points, where he scored 30-plus points each of the last two games and were uh, was unstoppable, you need that player of James Harden, right? You trade for him, you pay him the big money. I know they didn't pay him, the Nets did, but he has that massive salary in order to play well in moments like this. And if he shows you he can't, you got to move on. You got to move on. You can't justify it to me re-signing him. I don't care if you let him go in free agency for nothing. I don't care if you even have to sign and trade for him or trade for someone else. I don't care that him and Darren Moore are best friends. You got to find a guy who could step up and play well when Embiid is hurting and needs someone else to kind of take the torch from him in a few games. So I'm curious your thoughts here. I think the player with the most pressure on him for the Sixers now with this Embiid injury is James Harden. I think now it's even more imperative for him to step up and play well in the wake of Embiid dealing with what we believe to be, according to reports, the fears, but not officially, the fears that he suffered a torn ligament in his right thumb. Is there even more pressure in your mind now on James Harden to step up and play all this postseason? I'll to your thoughts, Facebook Worldwide Sports Network. You can tweet me at Ryan Hickey Show. 
make sure to check out our uh, show, our, our, our network handle at WWSRN underscore radio. And make sure to check us out on YouTube, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. When we return, the NFL Draft is in three days from now, Thursday in Las Vegas. There's not one team in my mind that can justify drafting a quarterback in the first round. We'll discuss why that is when we return us into the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Ryan Hickey, back with you on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. The lights will be shining bright in Las Vegas on Thursday night for the first round of the NFL Draft. And you know what? Getting and looking at this draft, I don't think there should be one quarterback taken in the first round. I think any team that tries to draft a quarterback in the first round is settling. Let me ask you this question. When we're talking about something as important as a quarterback position in sports, so it's very important. When is settling for anything important ever worked out? If we just go away from sports for a second, right? You can settle for food choices and you can live with it. You can settle for, you know, trivial aspects of life. And even if you're upset, it's not going to ruin your day. It's not going to really ruin really more than the few hours that you're there if you're either settling on a restaurant that food you don't really like or not you know into or travel plans trivial aspects of life settling on fine sometimes you win sometimes you lose but we're talking about really important decisions here like a, like a quarterback position when is settling ever worked out and if you look at life when is settling for a significant other ever worked out right if you i don't know meet this guy meet this girl partner, if you will, and you said, you know what, I'm really into them, fine, it works out, but if you're like, eh, I don't really know, I like, you know, their smile, they're not really funny, conversation is tough, uh, you know, but I don't really, I don't really have anything else going right now, so I guess I'll see where this goes, when is settling ever turned into a 50-year marriage? It hasn't, you never want to settle for something important, because it never, ever works out, so why, if you're a, a NFL team right now, why would you settle in taking a first-round quarterback? What is a team that's ever settled uh, for picking a quarterback in the first round? When's that ever worked out? It has never worked out. If you are not in love with a quarterback, if there aren't these QBs that are canvas prospects, which there are not in this draft, it has never worked out where you have your quarterback for the next decade. There's one common theme this entire draft process so far, and that is none of these quarterbacks are really truly worthy of being a first-round pick. So if that's the case, if everyone feels that way, why would a team settle or reach for a QB that's not worth it in the first round that's only to me going to set their team back? It doesn't make any sense, which is why I think every single team picking 1 through 32, I think should pass on a quarterback here in the first round. We haven't seen it since 1996. So it's been, you know, basically 25 years since it's last happened. But I think if you're a smart organization, you say we are going to help make history and this is not the year to take a quarterback in the first round. When you look at respected draft analysts, 
One that I really like a lot and one that I respect his work and what he says about prospects is Dane Brugger of The Athletic. He does this massive draft guide, uh, draft guide called The Beast. It was just released a few weeks ago. It's like 400 players, all these different scouting reports, mock draft in and of itself. But he does very detailed breakdowns of a lot of prospects for the NFL. And he had the two highest quarterbacks he had rated were Kenny Pickett 1, Malik Willis 2. He has them at borderline, as borderline first-round picks. He has Pickett the 30th overall prospect and the 32nd overall prospect for uh, Malik Willis. So we're talking borderline end of the first round picks. If we are barely, barely getting two quarterbacks in the first round, why would you take one at six, at nine, even at 20? It's a reach. Greg McElroy. I'm sure you heard his name, whether it's from quarterbacking at Alabama, hosts a show, uh, or a sports talk show. He does a, a, a tremendous job on ESPN calling college football games as well. He was on the Zach Gallup show last week. Show I produced, no big deal. He was saying that he would not take any of these quarterbacks in the first round. So, in a world that we live in, where division is prevalent, no one can agree on anything. One of the rare things everyone in the draft community can agree on is that no quarterback is really that good or that talented or worth being a first-round pick. Like in this draft, everyone's on the same page. There's no canvas prospect at quarterback. There's no consensus number one QB. There's really no pro-ready step-in day one and take over a franchise quarterback in this draft. So every quarterback taken in the first round would be a reach. And in my opinion, that's the worst thing a team can do. Because when you are reaching on a quarterback, you are basically hoping it works out. Any general manager that works in hope, I think should be fired. Because hope is not a strategy. Oh man, I really hope this works out. No, you got to know if you're a general manager. You have to know if I draft this guy, he is going to take over the team and lead us to the promised land. He is going to develop into a quarterback that will be here for 10 years. If you take a quarterback hoping it works out, you are going to be fired because those quarterbacks you hope work out never work out. Ask the Giants of Daniel Jones. Ask the Broncos of Paxton Lynch, or really any quarterback that the Broncos have drafted recently. Ask the Browns of Johnny Manziel. Those hope projects have all failed. So we are seeing teams that have hoped, that have reached for quarterbacks that aren't deserving of being as drafted as high as they are, fail. Not work out. And for every team outside of the Cardinals, when they drafted Josh Rosen and bagged him a year later, every team holds on to these young quarterbacks for two, three, four seasons, way too long, and hoping, hoping they work out. But guess what? They never do. And why that's such a detriment to your team is that when you are now hoping a quarterback works out, when you are now investing three, four years into a guy that's not worth it, you are making your team around that quarterback worse. Because let's call for what it is. What, what happens? When a young quarterback struggles, like if you reach a first-round quarterback and he struggles to play well, what happens? Well, the quarterback is never the first one to go. Usually either the GM is fired, the head coach is fired, both are fired. Players you know that are around the quarterback uh, get moved around. Sometimes teams get desperate and either overpay or trade more compensation than they have to to get a receiver, to get a tackle in there, to try to do everything possible to have that quarterback succeed. 
And when you're not good, when, you, when you're reach on a QB, they're not going to succeed. So guess what? You end up spending more resources, more resources than you should on a bad quarterback. You end up firing a GM, a head coach, or sometimes both, and maybe don't deserve to get fired because instead the quarterback that they have is not very good. And you set your team back three or four years because it also prevents you from drafting a guy that could be the answer. Let me just say for argument's sake, right? Let's just throw the team like a Carolina Panthers out there who have been rumored to potentially take a quarterback at six. Matt Rule is on the hot seat. Let's say he says, you know what? The best way for me to keep my job in 2022, let's draft Malik Willis. Let's sell hope in the future. And whether you draft Malik Willis and you don't play him or you draft Malik Willis and play him earlier than he should, he is going to struggle in year number one. And guess what? When you have Malik Willis now, you draft him in the first round, you are not going to draft a quarterback in the first round next year. So even though Bryce Young is a better prospect than Malik Willis or Kenny Pickett, even though CJ Stroud, we believe right now, is a better prospect than either of those two, you're going to be out of the running for a better quarterback next year because you took a quarterback this year. And again, outside of just the uh, Cardinals, who are the only team we have seen basically be one and done with the first round pick, first round pick at quarterback, you're going to keep on trying to have him succeed when in reality, there's not a lot of succeeding there. So when you look at also two teams that could take a quarterback, teams like the Carolina Panthers, teams like the Seattle Seahawks, teams like the Steelers, I don't think it makes much sense for any of these teams that have been projected to take a quarterback to take one in the first round. But again, let's just go back to the Panthers. Right? I just said Matt Rule is fighting for his job. This is basically a playoff uh, playoffs or bust season for the Carolina Panthers head coach. So with that said, if you're Matt Rule, you have two ways to keep your job. Making the playoffs or basically trying to sell hope. Well, we saw the, the Bears in Matt Nagy and Ryan Pace basically try to sell hope to the fans by drafting Justin Fields and saying, all right, you know what? You got to keep us here because we have a young quarterback. Well, guess what? Bears didn't care. They fired the GM. They fired the head coach. So drafting a, a young rookie quarterback doesn't guarantee you job security at all. So if you're Matt Rule, the only way you get to keep your job, making the playoffs. So if I'm Matt Rule, I am much rather hitching my wagons to either Jimmy G or Baker Mayfield. Uh, two quarterbacks that I know can have success in the NFL that have led teams to the playoff, uh, led teams to the playoffs, and have won playoff games. I'd much rather sink or swim with Jimmy G or Baker Mayfield next year than take a chance on Malik Willis and hope he works out. Hope there's enough there that I can, you know, convince ownership to uh, stay with me. To me, I think you got to go the veteran route if you're Matt Rule in order to save his job. The Seahawks, I don't care what they say. I don't care what John Schneider says. I don't care what Pete Carroll says. The Seahawks are tanking. They could say they're not. They traded Russell Wilson. They cut Bobby Wagner. This team is not going to be very good next year. They have so many holes. So number one, I think they'll trade down because this Seahawks team loves trading down. So at number nine, I don't think they'll take a quarterback because I don't think they'll be making a pick there. And also number two, you have Drew Lockett quarterback. Let him play. Let him stink it up and go get a very high draft pick next year to maybe draft the true answer in Bryce Young and CJ Shroud and whoever is going to develop and explode in college football next season. Set yourself up to have a better chance at landing a QB in a deeper quarterback class next year than basically taking a flyer on a QB this year. I know I said Malik Willis, I think, will be drafted by the Saints. But if you truly look at the Saints, they are a playoff or uh, bust team in their mind. 
They want to make a playoff push. They want to take advantage of a bad NFC. And again, the reports are out there that they traded uh, with the Eagles to get that extra first-round pick this year in order to draft two playmaking quarter uh, players to impact them right away. If you take a quarterback with Malik Willis at number uh, whatever, 15 or 19, that, that, he's not playing this year. Right? Malik Willis should uh, sit out for a while and miss this entire year learning and developing. So if you do take a quarterback for the Saints, well, that quarterback most likely is not going to be playing at all this year. So those two impact players that you were reportedly trading up to get, one of them is not going to be playing because it's going to be a developmental year for them. I mean, even Dan Campbell with the Lions. Right? We know Jared Goff is not very good, and this is a team that has always kind of been um, in the top three or four picks. They have two first-round picks. They have number two overall, and they have number 32 overall. Well, yeah, Dan Campbell, earlier this offseason, basically say, you don't need a good quarterback in order to be successful. So Dan Campbell is just trying to create a smoke screen. Um, so teams don't jump the lines at 32 and try to play off like he's not uh, drafting a quarterback when that is the goal, whether he truly believes that and thinks he can win with Jared Goff. Dan Campbell's kind of showed you, yeah, we're not really interested in a quarterback. So any of these teams, I don't think it makes sense for them to draft a quarterback if I'm them. We always see multiple quarterbacks go in the first round. Again, it's been since 1996, the last time a quarterback wasn't taken in the first round. I don't think a quarterback should go in round number one. I think a team would be reaching. I think they're making a big mistake and setting up unfair expectations for their quarterback when reality uh, when reality is there, they should not be there. Like if you draft a quarterback in the second round, different story. The expectations are different. The pressure is different. But the reality is the first round pick, a lot of fans and executives around the league assume this is franchise uh quarterback worthy this is a guy who could be with us for the next decade he can lead us to the playoffs he can lead us to a Super Bowl well, you don't draft a quarterback in the first round and just say oh yeah I hope we can get to 500 oh yeah I hope they can just be okay no you are taking a difference maker that you think can be your quarterback for the next 10 to 15 years I don't think that quarterback is in this draft which is why I would not take a QB in the first round so I'm curious your thoughts here if you have a, a if you're a fan of a team that is in need of a quarterback that could take one in the first round. Do you want them taking one? Do you want your team drafting Malik Willis or Kenny Pickett or Matt Corral or Sam Howell in round number one? Love to hear your thoughts, whether it's on Facebook, Worldwide Sports Radio Network, whether it's on Twitter, WWSR Run underscore Radio. You can tweet me directly at Ryan Hickey Show. Whether it's on YouTube, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. We're all broadcasting live from those three platforms, Play uh, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. And you can all comment on the live stream of each uh, or on each of those uh, platforms. So, love to get your thoughts here. Do you want your team, if you are in need of a quarterback, to draft a QB in round number one? Let me get your thoughts. And when we return here, I don't think a quarterback should go in round number one. But I know reality is not going to go what I'm saying. I think there will be quarterbacks taken. How many quarterbacks will be taken in the first round and where? I think it's going to be three. I'll tell you who those three quarterbacks uh, drafted are going to be and where when we are turning us into the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. 
Ryan Hickey back with you here on the Worldwide Sports Radio. Right Look, so I don't think any team should draft a quarterback in the first round, but also I know kind of my whole point last segment was being uh, was unrealistic. Because as we know, right, the quarterback position is the most important position in all sports, and teams and GMs are going, are going to draft quarterbacks. I would be floored and absolutely very shocked if we get through the first 32 picks on Thursday night and there's not at least one quarterback taken. So I realize that even though I don't think any quarterback should be taken in the first round, even though if I was a GM, I wouldn't take one in the first round, the reality is not everyone thinks the way I do. And quarterbacks will go uh, earlier than they should, which I think will be in the first round. So now if we are talking about predicting how many quarterbacks will go and where, I think three quarterbacks will be drafted in the first round. I think it's Malik Willis. I think it's Kenny Pickett. I think it's Matt Corral. Let's start with Malik Willis. I think he's the first quarterback off the board, and I think he's going to the Saints. I don't think the Saints have to trade up in order to get him so they can stay where they uh, where they are. And again, now they have an extra first-round pick for the Eagles, so the Saints are able to accomplish two goals here. They're able to fill a need that can help them win right now, this season in 2022, and get to the playoffs. They can also, though, fill a need by preparing for the future and try to get a quarterback that can be there for the next decade. Because when the Saints made the move in, in getting the extra first-round pick for the Eagles for this year, the reports are from many NFL insiders that the reason why the Saints made this deal is because they want to compete and make the plus in 2022, and they want impact players that can help them win games this season. So if you think about it, okay, you can use one first-round pick on a defensive end, on an uh, offensive lineman, on a receiver— you can shore up a need um, for this year with the first first-round pick and have your team become more competitive this year. And then you can also draft Malik Willis with the second first-round pick. I believe it's 19 overall, if I'm not mistaken. In order to start to get your um, get your team ready for the future. Because look, this team is solid. You have Michael Thomas, you have Alvin Kamara, you have a solid line, you have a really good defense. This team is ready to win, and you can win with Jameis Winston. Can you win consistently? I don't think so. I think Jameis this year, especially with a down NFC, is good enough to get you to the playoffs. I don't think he's good enough to win your playoff game. I don't think he can even be trusted more than one year at a time. So I know this time to a two-year deal, but I really would be very cautious of committing to Jameis Winston for even more than just a year. So if you're the Saints, you can obviously try to compete now with Jameis. You could sit Malik Willis down behind Jameis and have him sit and learn for the entire year. There's no pressure on him to play. You can have it kind of be with the 49ers do with Trey Lance. Jimmy G starts, you make the playoffs, you make a push, and then you, you go to the future next year. I think that's what the Saints can do. You can make a playoff push this year. You can have Malik Willis play. There's, no, uh, there's not a ton of pressure to throw him on the field right away. Have him learn, have him develop, have him wait, which is what he needs. And then next year... Hand the keys over to Malik Willis. And again, you have Michael Thomas, you have Alvin Kamara. Maybe you have a, another receiver there as well. Uh, to Kaltman, Michael Thomas, you have a good old line. The pieces are in place for Malik Willis to have success. You don't want to overwhelm him too early, which I think, again, having him sit behind Jameis Winston for a year, learn, develop, relax, make mistakes of practice, will be perfect for his development. So I think for me, the Saints are a team that will draft a quarterback. I think they'll draft a quarterback uh, in Malik Willis. And they will set themselves up for the next decade, uh, 
at least hopefully, right? That's the goal if it works out. Because you look around the rest of the NFC, by the way, we talk about how loaded the AFC is. The AFC is not only loaded with talent, they're loaded with young quarterbacks. That's not the case in the NFC. Two best quarterbacks in the NFC are Tom Brady at 45 and Aaron Rodgers at 38. So those two quarterbacks are going to be passing the baton in that conference over soon. Dak Prescott is, look, not a quarterback I feel great about in terms of being a Super Bowl caliber quarterback. Kyler Murray right now and the Cardinals are, you know, at odds. Maybe they get a contract extension done. I do think they will. But right now, I mean, who knows how how damaged that relationship is to where maybe two, three, four years from now, Kyler Murray is requesting another trade out if he does sign an extension and gets out of there. So there's not a lot of young, talented quarterbacks that you could feel either good about or think they'll be there for the long term right now in the NFC. So for the Saints, you could try to get that guy, try to develop him, and try to set yourself up to be one of the teams to be in the NFC, excuse me, for the next decade here by drafting Malik Willis, but also by having that other first-round pick, you are allowing yourself to still build the team to win right now and be competitive in 2022 for a playoff spot. And the Saints will get the best of both worlds. They'll develop or they'll, they'll draft for the now and for the future, and they will take Malik Willis with their second first-round pick, and Malik Willis will be the first quarterback off the board. I think a few picks after him will be Kenny Pickett going to the Steelers. I don't think the Steelers will be able to help themselves here. Local kid, loved by the fans. And I think drafting him um, is important for two things, uh, two reasons. Number one, again, I think it's it helps that he went to Pitt. I think it helps that the fans are are familiar with him and his play. Uh, but he's another guy in Kenny Pickett that, sure, maybe is the most pro-ready now, but even still is not ready to start week number one. So why that's important is because you do have Mitch Trubisky. Now, is Mitch Trubisky a quarterback you can feel great about? No. I don't think you're making the playoffs with Mitch Trubisky as your quarterback in Pittsburgh. But the reason why at least Mitch being as important is because Kenny Pickett and Mitch Trubisky have very similar skill sets. They're both athletic. They both can you know use their legs to make plays. They both are even at times better out of the pocket than inside the pocket. So you have two quarterbacks with very similar skill sets. You could have you know not only Mitch Trubisky help out Kenny Pickett, but also you don't have to change the offense. You can have Kenny, uh, Kenny Pickett learn and develop in an offense that when he eventually takes over from Mitch, whether it's middle of the year, end of the year, or in 2023, the offense stays the same. He is comfortable in an offense that is catered to him. And again, doesn't have to change much because the quarterback skill sets between Mitch and Kenny are the, are the same. Like if we look, if we go back to the San Francisco uh, example I just used before, you have Jimmy, uh, Jimmy Garoppolo last year, who is more of a pocket passer. Not a, a very athletic player. He's not going to make a lot of plays outside the pocket or with his legs. Trey Lance is the opposite. Trey Lance is, is super athletic, can make a lot of plays with his legs, make plays outside the pocket, extremely strong arm. So the offense, when Trey Lance is in, compared to when Jimmy G is in, almost two different offenses. Two different skill sets, two different you know areas of strengths these quarterbacks have. So the offense, even though a lot of it is similar, it does change depending on who is under center. That is not the case here. Mitch and, and Kenny have very similar skill sets to where the offense will stay the same, whether it's Mitch under center or whether it's Trubisky under center. Excuse me. So I do think that that does behoove the Steelers so they can still afford to be patient with Kenny Pickett, not throw him to the Wolves right away, have him sit and learn, similar to Malik Willis in New Orleans, but then when it is time for Pickett to play, nothing really changes. Everything can kind of stay the same. And I think that will help both Kenny's development and the offense flow because they are already used to playing in a certain way with a certain type of quarterback.
So, I think Malik Willis, first quarterback off the board going to the Saints. I think right after him goes Kenny Pickett to the Steelers. And the third and final quarterback I think that'll be taken in the first round is Matt Corral. I think he's going to the Lions. I think uh, not at number number two, that is for sure. At 32. I think with getting that second first round pick uh, that the Lions do have, you have it at number 32 from the Rams. Grabbing a quarterback here at the end allows Detroit to have that extra year of... um, uh, of a contract with the fifth-year option, so you get an extra year for a cheap quarterback. You get an extra year control. And when you look at Matt Corral, I think he is a project, but he is someone I think is worth taking the risk on because what he brings, I think, is very high upside. Like, Malik Wilson has the highest upside, highest ceiling out of all of them. I would put Matt Corral there at number two because he's super athletic, and he's a playmaker. Now, he might crash and burn. He might be too small. He might be banged around. He might not have a lot of success. The NFL game could be too big and too fast for him. But when you look at the Lions, what they haven't had, they have never really had a dynamic quarterback that can make plays with his feet and make plays with his athleticism. Matthew Stafford was more of a pocket passer and one with his arm and arm angles and throwing the ball deep a lot. Matt Crow is a playmaker. Like, you see him at Ole Miss. He was very dangerous running the ball. Early on in his career, he was more of a running quarterback than a throwing quarterback. He's super athletic, but now he's learned to kind of hone his skills and become more of a pocket passer, if you will, as much as he can in an RPO-style offense. We see a lot of colleges run, but it's high tempo. He's asked to make a lot of plays with his arm, but also with his legs, and he does have his legs and athleticism keep plays alive, which is what the, the Lions need. And again, similar to the Steelers, similar to the Saints, I do think the Lions have the perfect infrastructure to at least have these guys incubate and develop. You had Jared Goff as the, uh, as a starter right now for Detroit. So you can have Jared Goff take the hits for you. You can have Jared Goff take the lumps and have uh, Matt Corral sit and wait. You don't have to throw him to the Wolves. You don't have to ask him to do a million plays or a million different things and have him kind of be your savior. You can have Matt, uh, Matt Corral slowly come along and slowly develop. And number two, I think they should draft. If it's Aiden Hutchinson going to the Jaguars, you draft an offensive lineman. If not, you can go get Aiden Hutchinson at number two. Either way, the Lions, I think, need to shore up both sides of the, of the line, and they will do that at pick number two. So you can solidify that, get a little you know, more work in the trenches, and then at 32, start to kind of see your future here and start to draft for the future. The Lions have passed on quarterbacks in years past, whether it was Panay Sewell, uh, whether it's drafting a corner a few years ago, they have gone defense, offensive line, they've not gone quarterback. Now having that extra first round pick allows you that flexibility to take a flyer on a quarterback in number 32, kind of similar to what the Ravens did a few years ago when they traded back in the first round and drafted Lamar Jackson 32, get an extra year control and see what you got. See what you can do, see what Matt Corral is, and see how much that athleticism you can translate into success on the field. Again, you have Jared Goff, so you can at least give Matt Corral a chance to succeed by not forcing him on the field right away, and at least allowing him time to develop and allow him time to uh, to get his feet wet and get comfortable. So I do think the Lions will pull the trigger on a quarterback at 32, and I do think it'll be Matt Corral. So I think three quarterbacks will go in round number one. Malik Willis to the Saints, Kenny Pickett to the Steelers, Matt Corral to the Lions. I'm curious your thoughts here. How many quarterbacks will be drafted in the first round and to where? Do you think a quarterback is going higher than Malik Willis to the Saints? Late first round. 
Will we see a quarterback go in the top 10? Should the Panthers draft a quarterback? I don't think so. Will they, though? They've been a very popular destination in terms of mock drafts when you look at teams taking a quarterback in number six. Will we see a team trade up in the top 10 to get a quarterback? Who will be the first QB off the board? And where will they go? Love to hear your thoughts here on Facebook, Worldwide Sports Network. Twitter, you can tweet me at Ryan Hickey Show. YouTube, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. We're all over the digital platform here. Uh, so make sure whether it's Facebook, you're throwing us a like, Worldwide Sports Network, or you can like our brand new show page, The Ryan Hickey Show. The Ryan Hickey Show will have every single live show, all the clips we put out after the show, right in one space. So make sure you check us out there and throw us a like on Facebook. On Twitter, we're at, again, Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter or all, or WWSRN underscore radio. And YouTube, we're there, Worldwide Sports Ryan Network. But also check us out on the gram, Instagram, Ryan Hickey Show for a lot of other reels, a lot of other shorter clips as well. As a reminder, it is 10.36 a.m. on the East Coast, which means the 10 o'clock hour is sponsored by LC Designs. Charcuterie boards are perfect for all occasions, so make sure your guests are happily fed with some delicious and aesthetically pleasing charcuterie boards made by Lauren Clark herself. So make sure you check out lcdesignsnyc.com for more information. When we return, Ben Simmons out of the lineup for game number four for the Nets. Is this the right decision to not play Ben? We'll discuss when the Ryan Aker Show returns right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Ryan Hickey back with you on a Monday morning. Now look, I'm going to say this. I am more results-oriented than process-oriented, right? There's really two ways you can go about accomplishing something. If you have the right process to do something, even if the results don't uh, line up all the time, People care more about the process of how you get to, let's say, A plus B equals C. Others just care about, hey, what is C? Is C the right answer? Right? I don't care how you get there. If you go to A to X to Y to Z, that gets us to B or C. As long as the result and the answer is the right is the right one, that's all that matters. I don't care how we get there. When it comes to the Nets, right? for me, the process of how they got to Ben Simmons not playing was convoluted. It was messed up. It was wrong. But being results-oriented, only care about the final result. The final result is, is that Ben Simmons is not playing game four. Realistically, he's not playing at all this postseason. And that, to me, is the right move for the Nets. You can't play Ben Simmons this postseason. We saw and we know there was reports that he was ramping up for game four. He was going to play game four. There's reports before the postseason started that he's going to miss the playing tournament, but then it's expected he's going to play somewhere in the postseason. Then we got an idea. Okay, game four, he's circling in on as long as he's okay. He's going to play game four. And then, of course, as we know, boom, uh, Sunday we find out he's not going to play game four. Even Steve Nash, who's speaking this morning uh, to the media, just I just saw on Twitter, basically said, I was never expecting him to play. So the, the Nets process for how we got here, where it was whether there was uh, the Nets that was leaking this out, whether it was Ben Simmons' camp that was leaking this out about Game 4 and his return. I don't care the fact that the process was, was supposed to be that he was returning. The result is he's not playing, and that is the right move for the Mets. Uh, for, the, for the Mets. For the Nets. Write this season off. Ben Simmons is under contract for three more years. The Nets want Ben Simmons to succeed in Brooklyn. For me, the best way to have him succeed in Brooklyn is by not playing this year, get healthy this offseason, actually practice with the team you're on and then actually play in games that 
matter in the regular season, but don't actually have the same intensity as a playoff game and get comfortable that way. That to me is, is the best way to ensure Ben Simmons has actual success in Brooklyn instead of kind of throwing him in the fire in game number four, even though you're down 0-3, and see if he can sink or swim. Because let me ask you this question. I know the Nets are down 0-3. I get that this right now, this series has gone as bad as it could have gone. But how does Ben Simmons' return actually help the Nets? Like, before, again, before you say, hey, they're down 0-3, nothing, you know, anything can help at this point. The idea, the thinking, the logic, right, of playing Ben Simmons is that he is going to contribute something positive to the team. Steve Nash, the head coach, Sean Marks, the uh, GM, even Ben Simmons himself, right, they wouldn't, he wouldn't want to play, they wouldn't play him if they knew this guy's going to contribute nothing, he's going to be more of a, a net negative than a net positive, we're not going to throw him on the court. Now, you only are playing Ben Simmons if you expect good results from him. And I think r- the reality is you cannot expect anything positive out of Ben Simmons' this postseason. It's unrealistic. It's not going to happen. Because the reality is the guy has not played in a year. The last game he has played competitively was June 20th. Game 7 of the Eastern Conference Semifinals against the Hawks. We know that game is very well remembered for a multitude of reasons, especially Benson's passing up a dunk. That was the final nail in his Philly coffin. But the date is important because that was basically one year ago. He last played in a game, a competitive game on June 20th. It is now April 25th. And forget about playing. Forget about playing in a competitive game. He hasn't even competed in a competitive practice. That's right, AI. We are talking about practice. It may not be important for you, but it is important for Ben Simmons because he has not practiced really at all at the Nets since his injury, since he was traded there. And he is, if you want to call practice, had one practice with the Sixers before really all hell and loose, right? We remember that video back in training camp when he's sitting there with with Fink as a phone in his pocket going through defensive drills and he's basically just standing there. He had more of a sweat. He did more of a workout walking into the Sixers facility and changing into his sneakers and sweatpants than he did actually participating in that one practice where we saw a video of. So Ben Simmons hasn't done anything of physical exertion in a year. Because whether it's with the Nets, where he hasn't been able to practice because of a herniated disc in his back, and every video we see coming out of Nets practice, it's him taking one-foot jumpers where he's barely moving, he's barely dribbling the ball, he's not running, he's not sprinting, he's just taking one-foot floaters with one arm. That's all we've seen from him doing at Nets practice. Again, and the one practice he had the Sixers, he was just standing there and they kicked him out of practice. So forget about even playing in a game and getting your competitive juices back that way. He hasn't even competed in in a real practice. So for a guy that hasn't played or hasn't practiced in a year, do you really expect now Ben Simmons to go out in game four and put the clamps on Jason Tatum? Shut down Jalen Brown. Be this, you know, all NBA defensive player. Grab 10 rebounds. Lead the fast break offense. Do you really think he's going to be setting up KD and Kyrie for, for shots and trying to get them, you know, out of the funk that they're in? Like, that's unrealistic. And it's honestly... I'm not even trying to defend Ben Simmons. I'm just trying to almost just look at this from a logical perspective. It's almost unfair to expect anything from Ben Simmons. It's unfair to ask anyone, whatever profession you're in, to not work for a year and then in one of the most pressurized situations in whatever industry you're in to basically drop in and say, hey, be your best. 
Go do what you do best, even though you haven't done it for a year. And I know a lot of that's on Ben. I'm not trying to say that this whole situation is not on him. He is deserving of a lot of the blame here. But the reality is, he has not practiced or played in the year. And now the, the Nets truly thought in game four with your season on the line, he was going to come in and play some big time minutes and lock down Jason Tatum, which no Nets defender has been able to do, shut down Jalen Brown run a transition offense and, and try to unlock Kevin Durant so far, who, who's just been you know, a total mess, whether it's because of the Celtics defense or him just being in, in his own head um, the first three games, whether it's Kyrie Irving, one of the, you know, who's been super streaky so far this postseason, you really think he was going to come in there and give you any sort of positive contribution? That is unrealistic. It's unfair to think, and it wasn't happening. So why would you bring him back when I think the only thing that was going to happen was negativity. He wasn't going to play well. He wasn't going to defend. He wasn't going to rebound. He wasn't even going to even have the conditioning to be able to play a long time. Not to mention, bringing him back basically ice cold to the same exact platform where he last year shrunk, I don't think is a wise decision or a recipe for success. Again, let's not forget, Ben Simmons is here for the long haul. He is in Brooklyn for at least three more seasons, we believe. That's at least what the contract says. So this is not just one of those situations where the Nets are dealt with Ben Simmons after the season and he's a free agent and he's going to leave. The Nets have to be thinking about what is the best case for Ben Simmons. You want him to succeed, right? The Nets' job, Steve Nash's job, Sean Marks' job, is to put Ben Simmons in the best possible position to succeed. That's to get the most out of a player. I don't think... Giving him the best chance to succeed is by throwing him right back on the platform. Ice cold uh, is the same platform he choked on last year is that all of a sudden now going to work wonders. All of a sudden a change of scenery is now going to have him play so much better in the playoffs, which you know last time we saw him was the exact area he struggled. Like I get you're asking him to do different things in Brooklyn compared to in Philly. He's not going to be your, your top two scorer, right? He's not going to even be asked to take a lot of jump shots. He is going to just be asked to play good defense, rebound, and kind of be the point guard and a pass-first point guard. I get that, right? Where he wasn't asked to do that in Philly, that's what his role will be in Brooklyn on this current team as it is constructed. But again, when you haven't played that long, when you're now thrusting him back into the playoffs on the same exact, um, in the same exact pressurized situation that he folded last year. You're not giving him a chance to get his feet wet. You're not giving him a chance to even build any sort of confidence. I don't think that, again, putting him back in the playoffs in the same uh, posted that he struggled uh, on the same platform he struggled on last year, I don't see that as beneficial to the Nets. I don't think it makes a lot of sense, and I don't think it's how, uh, or it's why, or it's how, I should say, um, how he's going to succeed. I don't think right now playing Ben Simmons in this postseason is a recipe success uh, for either Simmons or the Nets. Again, you playing him in game four with your season on the line is asking Ben Simmons to come in right away and be his best off of a year of not practicing or not playing or not even really knowing his teammates. No shot that happens. No chance that happens. So I don't see how it benefited the Nets to basically put a, a stranger, which is what he's been. Ben Simmons is on the court or in the practice facility, sure. He's on the sideline, sure. So, you know, KD and Kyrie know who Ben Simmons is. They know what he looks like. They've talked to him. But he is essentially a stranger to them on the court because he has never played with them. He hasn't even practiced with them. 
They don't know what his passes are like. They don't know, you know, what he likes to do, what he does well. They have no clue. It's literally like if me and you, the Nets just signed us for whatever reason and said, all right, go play game four, go play a great game. It's not happening. We're not playing great. No one knows how to play with each other. And I don't think with their season on the line, that's the best time to bring Ben Simmons back. Not to mention, not to mention, let's just say he did play game four. Let's just say this back issue that he claims to have hurt, which I am very skeptical about to begin with, to be completely honest. He's actually physically hurt now and he can't play. I think it's very much a coincidence that after 10 straight days of, of, of um, being pain-free in the back, all of a sudden the day before he's supposed to play, he feels uh, back tightness and not ready to go. Red flag there. I don't buy that. But anyway, let's just say that didn't happen. Let's say he was going to play tonight in game four. And let's say he played well. Let's say he, he does the opposite of what I'm saying. He comes in, plays great defense, is a monster on the boards, and is, you know, is, is giving the Nets a ton of fast break opportunities. How impactful, if Ben Simmons plays, even if he, he plays well, how impactful is it going to be um, on the scoreboard? Because the Nets, if they were going to play him, were going to play him very limited minutes. It was reported that he was going to play about 10 to 15 minutes uh, if he was ever going to get on the court. I mean, even if he plays well again, is 10 to 15 minutes enough to change a game and impact a game for you to win it? I don't think so. Like, what is that even going to do? Again, even if he was able to lock down Jason Tatum, even if he was running the offense to perfection and KD was getting some good looks and Kyrie was getting some open shots and all of a sudden they started clicking a little bit, well, when he gets off the court, it's going to revert back to what we saw so far the first three games. So even just playing 10 to 15 minutes, I don't think is enough, even if he impacts the game in a positive way, to truly change the game for the Nets to where they are going to win. So I don't see even the, the, the benefit of just the small playing time he's going to have, how that works out well for, for Ben Simmons and how that works out well for the Nets. So to me, this entire situation, this entire saga that has been playing on really since Ben Simmons was traded from, from the Sixers to the Nets, I think was a process that was um, very flawed. The reality was he was never going to play. He never should have played. Once he was unable to return in the regular season, that should have been it. The court should have been pulled on the Ben Simmons experiment for the season. When you were unable to get him any sort of live reps in the regular season, get his feet wet, I don't think it was it was wise or would have worked out well by throwing him back in the playoffs. And now the process of, of throwing it out there and saying, oh, maybe game three, maybe game four, this, I don't even say getting people's hopes up, but expecting his return, I think is a massive mistake. And the fact that the whole process was flawed doesn't to me though take away from the end result being the right one. The, at the end of the day, Ben Simmons is not playing. That's the right decision. That is in the best interest of the Nets for the future. Because again, right now when you see how this team is currently constructed, Kevin Durant really struggling this postseason. Kyrie Irving is very streaky. We have seen now teams, and this, or I should say we've seen these Nets deficiencies really rear their ugly heads. They don't play any defense. They don't have really any sort of depth uh, scoring outside of KD and Kyrie. And when both of those, even one of them are struggling, they don't win many games. Ben, the Nets need Ben Simmons. Let's just call for what it is. I know we can climb him. I know we can, you know, laugh at his work ethic or lack thereof and what he wears. The reality is this. If the Nets want to have success in the future, they need Ben Simmons to be successful. They do. And for me, the best way to get Ben Simmons and put him in the best position to succeed going forward 
is by not playing him in the postseason. Have him take all offseason to get healthy, get some work in, get some practices in with Kevin Durant and whoever else is on the Nets next year. Get some regular season games under your belt and develop confidence that way. Throwing him into the fire that is game four of the playoffs for me was never, never a smart strategy to either win a game in the playoffs this year or try to develop Ben Simmons' confidence next year. You say I'm coddling him. You say I'm being soft. The reality is, you need, if you're the Nets, Ben Simmons to be at his best. And if he needs to be coddled a little bit and maybe needs to get his feet wet by going to the shallow end of the pool first, which is offseason, which is playing in preseason games, which is playing in regular season games to build his confidence back up, get some continuity with this team, so be it. This season's over anyway. You're down 3-0. It's over. Don't now hurt yourself next season by throwing Ben Simmons in the fire when he's not ready. So this, is to me, is the right decision. Don't play Ben Simmons in Game 4. Even if you win Game 4, shut Ben Simmons down for the rest of the postseason. Get him healthy, get his confidence up, and then try to get him at his best for next season because the Nets need him to be at his best for them to win. That, to me, is the best plan of action. And that, to me, is why, even though the process was flawed of how we got here, the result of Ben Simmons not playing is the right one. Man, what what drama that has been. Now, I do think the season ends tonight for Brooklyn. I do think they get swept at home. I think right now, after losing Game 3, it's over. I think this team has quit. I don't expect them to put up a big fight tonight. I'll be honest. I think the Celtics are still one of those teams that's not, not going to take their foot off the gas. I think they finish off the sweep tonight in Brooklyn and end a very disappointing Nets season. So that'll do it for today's edition of the Ryan Hickey Show. So we will not have a Thursday show. I do apologize for the NFL draft. I know it's going to be a massive topic on Thursday. I apologize for not being there, but I'll actually be at the draft. Going uh, for work for CBS Sports Radio to go help cover... Uh, and help produce our draft show, which will be live from Vegas. So I will be in Las Vegas, in the desert, uh, on Thursday. But make sure to check out our social media handles at Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter and Instagram. Ryan Hickey Show, Twitter, Instagram. We'll put a lot of content, a lot of posts from the draft. Keep you updated. Keep you up to date about what's going on between now and then. So no Thursday show. I apologize for that. So have a great week. Great week. Get a great week. And we'll talk to you a week from today right here on the Worldwide Sports Network. So as as always, stay safe, stay sane, and we'll talk to you next Monday right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network.